we're walking through what it looks like to be the living sacrifice, which is to please God in all things because of the mercies of God toward us, our gratitude for everything he's done for us in Christ. There's certain values that go along with that. Humility, community, love, beginning with love for the community, which is the local church. So those are the things we talked about last week. Today we're going to look at how our love extends to those outside of the church. Whether they're neutral towards you or friendly towards you, or especially with this passage, whether they're hostile to you. What does that look like? So let's read uh, verses 14 to 21. There's a little overlap from last week's passage, but it does hang together as a unit. Let's read that. Romans 12, 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we touch here on, on one of the most countercultural things about following Jesus, that we don't be overcome by evil, but that we overcome evil with good, that we do the opposite of what we'd normally do. And so, Lord, expand our understanding of it this morning. Show us what this call is on our life, how this is part of our living sacrifice, how this is the way we respond to your mercies, and make us more like it, help conform us to this, transform our minds as we learn by your Holy Spirit this morning what your call is on our lives. For our joy, for your glory, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. On June 17, 2015, 21-year-old Dylan Roof attended a Wednesday night Bible study at Emmanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina. Sometime during the study, he pulled out a handgun from his knapsack and he murdered nine of the church members in the Bible study. Later, he was arrested and sentenced to the death penalty. Roof was a white supremacist. The church was a black church. His crime was racially motivated by his own admission. Now, many days after the shooting, family members of the victims were given an opportunity to speak to the shooter at a bond hearing. And though they were still grieving, though they were still dealing with anger, what they said shocked the world. Because what they communicated was not vengeance, but forgiveness. 
Nadine Collier, whose mother was one of those kills, said this, I forgive you. You took something very precious from me. I will never talk to her again. I will never ever hold her again. But I forgive you and have mercy on your soul. One secular reporter commented that if this is the kind of person that Christianity produces, then I may have to give it a second look. Why do I bring up this story? Because that's exactly the kind of person that Christianity should produce. It's a person who loves their enemies, who genuinely hopes for them to receive mercy. Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, and that is what we will do if we are being transformed by the mercies of God. The good news of salvation in Jesus Christ is such a powerful reality that it can and will produce love towards those who wrong us. It may be the most vivid demonstration of the transformative power of God in a person's life because it is so not what we would normally do. Here's what we'll talk about this morning. First, we'll look at verse 14. That introduces the topic. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. That's loving your enemies. And then we'll see what it looks like in action. And Paul spells it out in verses 17 to 20. And then we'll summarize it all with verse 21. So that's where we're going. Let's start with verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. What's that saying to us? Well, the word Paul uses for bless means to request or confer God's favor upon. So when Jesus took the five loaves and the two fish, he, he looked up to heaven and he said a blessing. What was he doing? He was asking that this provision of food to the crowds, they would experience the favor of God, that they would see that he is good and they would believe in him as the good giver. It's a display of favor. Now that kind of attitude makes sense when the person you bless is your friend or a family member, someone that you like. We naturally do that. We remember their birthdays. We remember their anniversaries. We get them Christmas presents. We love to bless the people that we like. But what about when they are your enemies? What about when they persecute you, when they are hostile to you and wrong you because of your faith or because of your race or because of something else about you? Does blessing them, does showing them favor strike you as the sensible thing to do? It's not the first thing that comes to my mind. And probably not to yours either. What does come to mind when you're treated wrongly, when someone is hostile towards you? Cursing. Cursing is what comes to mind. That's what he says, bless and do not curse them, because that's what we would normally do. To curse is to request or confer disfavor on someone. To wish for judgment upon them and carry it out. It's what Jesus said God will do to his enemies 
in the parable of the sheep and the goats. Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, when God curses his enemies, he does it fairly and without sin. It's right for him to do it, and we're going to come back to that later. But when we curse our enemies, it won't be fair and it won't be without sin. It comes out differently, and that's what Paul expands on in the passage. He says in verse 17, Repay no one evil for evil. Our natural reaction to being hurt is not to do the right and the just thing, but, but, but to do the evil thing, to repay evil for evil. So, you lied about me to a friend? Well, I'm going to destroy your reputation on Facebook to the whole world. You treated me with racism. I'm going to burn down the city. We repay evil for evil, naturally. Paul adds to this by saying in verse 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves. The key word there is yourselves. It's all about you. It's wishing harm on someone because they harmed you. There's no higher principle that I'm defending, like being jealous for God's glory because it's his laws that are being broken. No, it's just payback. You did it to me. I don't like it. We naturally want this when we're harmed, and it feels good. It feels satisfying to get payback. Our movies reflect this. A popular movie plot is this. A person has something really bad happen to them. Maybe somebody cheated them out of all their money, and now they're penniless. Maybe a family member was murdered, and the law won't do anything about it. So what do they do? They go on a rampage. They systematically track down everybody who wronged them and they make them suffer in the most creative ways. And that's the movie story. That sells tickets. Why? Because we don't like to see people getting away with evil. We instinctively know something should be done about that. And what comes naturally is retaliation. I'm going to take matters into my own hands. I'm going to make the people who wronged me pay. And that's what makes the gospel so radical. Because the gospel is God chose to pay for the wrongs we've done to him. It's the exact opposite. The letter of Romans says we are the wrongdoers. And God is the offended party. Chapter 1 describes who we are naturally, filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, haters of God. And what does God do about it? God put forward Jesus Christ as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. On the cross, he poured out the curse on his own beloved Son, so that we might go free, that we might be pardoned by putting our faith in this Son as our sin-bearer. That's the mercy of God, which transforms how we respond to people who wrong us. This is what makes blessing those who persecute you our reasonable worship from verse 2. It would be totally unreasonable 
to love your enemies unless we'd seen God do it first, unless it flows out of gratitude for all he's done for us, how he did not treat us that way. So we have this command, bless those who persecute you. Bless those and do, bless and do not curse them. And that's grounded on the mercies of God. That's part of what it looks like to be a living sacrifice, living to please Him. Now, what does it look like in practice? What is loving your enemies? How, do, how does that get fleshed out in life? Well, there's something to do and there's something to trust. So let's first say let what there is to do. Verse 17 adds some detail. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. There are a lot of variations on how that's said in the different translations, but the idea here is basically that before you respond to some evil that's done to you, think carefully about it. Don't just fly off the handle. Don't just do the first thing that comes to your mind in this knee-jerk reaction because it will probably be the wrong thing. Instead, give thought to what is honorable, to what would be morally beautiful, and then do that. It means taking time to process your emotions and to consider the mercies of God towards you in Christ before you do something. And then do what's consistent with those mercies of God towards you. Like Nadine Collier telling Dylan Roof, I forgive you. It's something that just about anyone, Christian or non-Christian, would have to respect even if they wouldn't do it themselves. It is something honorable. It is something good. Verse 18 adds more details on what we do in loving our enemies. It says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. I think we know what this looks like. It means trying to keep peaceful relations with everyone, including the people that have harmed you. They may be unkind to you. You won't be unkind back to them. They may provoke you to anger, but you choose your words carefully. And it also means you don't avoid them. That's an instinctive reaction when someone has wronged you. You hurt me, I never want to see you again. That's a silent murder. I'm going to operate as if you don't exist anymore. You're done. You're out of my life. That's not living peaceably. That's just living separately. But you can still hate their guts. Nothing's changed. That's not what the Lord is after. We make the harder choice, which is to have friendly relations with someone who isn't friendly to us. But I appreciate Paul's realism in the exhortation. He says, if possible. (laughs) So far as it depends on you. Well, it isn't always possible, and it doesn't all depend on you. Because you might try to be on friendly terms with the person and they just won't have anything up, won't have any of it. Um, You might have David's experience in Psalm 120, verse 7. He said, I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. 
Maybe you have relationships like that with people. No matter how much kindness you show them, they just don't respond to it. I have friends back in Minneapolis who have this neighbor across the back fence. They lived behind, this guy lived behind him for years and years. And this guy just had it out for them. He would call the police when their dog barked. Um, when their kids were out on the trampoline, bouncing and having a good time, he would yell at them over the fence. They even have footage of him on their security camera cutting their Christmas lights, which they had hanging on the back fence. I mean, this guy was just mean. <laughs> Some people are just for war, and you can't be at peace with them. But we still try, because that is honorable, and most people will see it that way. One more thing Paul says to do in loving your enemies is in verse 20. He says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. So that's just doing practical things to care for and to bless that person who is making your life difficult. You see them in need, you see something missing in their life, and instead of thinking, well, that serves you right, you think, is there a way I can help with that? Maybe that looks like shoveling the sidewalk of the grumpy neighbor because he's got a bad back. Maybe you take a shift for a coworker at work who is giving you a lot of grief for your Christianity. We can think of things, practical things to do, but you do something. It's a concrete demonstration of love to those people who are not showing us that love. And you might not feel a lot of affection for the person as you're doing it, but you can love them by the actions themselves, and maybe the affections will follow later. <clears throat> this is what loving your enemies looks like. It's doing these things. But it also means that we trust something as we do these things. So let's look at that. Here's what to trust. It comes from verse 19. <clears throat> Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Now some might be put off by this verse. Because it says that God will have vengeance on people. That God will repay people for evil. And that seems like an inconsistency. After all, we are told not to repay <laughs> evil for evil. We are told not to avenge ourselves. And yet God gets to repay people and God gets to have vengeance on people. How can he tell us not to do something that he's doing? That's inconsistent, isn't it? Well, there's no inconsistency. Because when God repays, it isn't evil for evil. It's justice for evil. It's right. It's fair. It's the thing that ought to be done. The judge of all the earth shall surely do what is just. From Genesis 18, 25. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Psalm 98, 9. When God repays, it is always exactly what evil deserves. He does no wrong. And the reason God tells us not to avenge ourselves 
is because only he has the right and the authority to do it. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. That's why you don't do it. Full and final punishment for wrongdoing ultimately belongs to God, not to us, because it is his law that is being broken. It is his image that we have defiled. All sin is ultimately against him. That's why David, after taking Uriah's wife and having him killed, said in Psalm 51.4, Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Not that he didn't sin against Uriah and his wife, he did, but David recognized that his fundamental problem was that he had rejected God's authority over him. When we sin against people, we sin against God, and the punishment is God's to decide. He has the right and the authority to carry out because he created us, and he sets the rules. To use an illustration... If parents have two young boys and one of them takes the other boy's toy and smashes it, what does justice look like in that situation? Well, to the boy whose toy was broken, it might look like justice is to smack his brother over the head. And that might feel good to him, but that isn't appropriate because the parents have the authority over both of them. And they decide what justice looks like when one brother takes and smashes the other brother's toy. And they'll do it much more fairly. So it also is with God's justice, vengeance, the appropriate reckoning for wrongdoing is up to God to decide, not us. And he will do it much better and much more thoroughly, and it will be exactly right. Now, that doesn't mean that man plays no part in carrying out that vengeance. In fact, that's what the next passage is about. Romans 13, 1 through 7, says that God establishes governing authorities who do not bear the sword for nothing. They are avengers, he says, who carry out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So we will look at that passage next week because God has avengers. And not, the, and not the ones that we saw in the, the movies. <laughs> so there's no inconsistency in God telling us not to avenge ourselves or repay evil while reserving that for himself. When he does it, it's always exactly right. He has the right to do it. And this is what we are to trust. We are to trust that even though we will not repay, God will. No one will get away with evil in the end. Verse 19 says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Leave vengeance. Leave the appropriate punishment. Leave wrath to Him. It's unfortunate that many professing Christians are walking away from the concept of God's wrath. They do it because it seems contradictory to God being a God of love, that a loving God would never punish people severely and certainly not punish people in something as terrible as an eternal hell. 
but God cannot be truly loving if he doesn't punish wrongdoing, especially when it is done against the people that he loves most dearly, those whom he sent his son to die for. A parent proves his love for a son or a daughter by not being okay with the wrong things that are done to them. If someone were to abuse their daughter and they do nothing about it, that is not love. God's love for his people is precisely the reason he will take action and not let anyone get away with the evil that they do. His wrath on those who persecute you, who do evil to you, is the proof of his love. If we can't leave it to the wrath of God, then we would have to live with the realization that people really do get away with murder. And we can't live with that. That wars against our conscience. And that's why it is so tempting for people to repay evil for evil and to avenge themselves. Because if God's not going to do it, either because He doesn't exist or He doesn't care or he's just too impotent, then I'm going to do it. What other option do we have? But believers in Christ can trust that no one gets away with any evil because vengeance is the Lord. He will repay every evil act, every crime against humanity, every sin that has ever taken place, every wrong done to you will be dealt with by God. Because it is, either, it is either dealt with on Jesus, who bore the penalty for it on the cross, or it will be dealt with in the wrongdoer, who will bear the penalty in eternal punishment. But it will be dealt with. And that's what the end of verse 20 is talking about. It says that when you give food and drink to your enemy, by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Now, some commentators take that to mean that your kind acts toward your persecutors will heap burning coals of shame on them, that they may repent when you respond in kindness instead of in vengeance. And I don't doubt that that could be the effect on our kind acts, and it is right to wish for that to be the effect of our kind acts. Dylan Roof, who murdered the nine people in the church, said he almost didn't go through with it because they were so nice to him. We should wish for that outcome. But Roof did go through with it. And your kindness may not have any effect on those who harm you. You may be for peace, but they may be for war, and your blessings may not lead to their repentance at all. But the verse seems more confident than that. It says, you will heap burning coals on his head. So that seems to be a guarantee of some sort. And repentance and shame is not a guarantee. One thing we do know that's guaranteed, though, is that we can leave it to the wrath of God. For he will not let it go unpunished. Burning coals in the scripture always seems to be linked to judgment. So what Paul is probably saying there is that if you've done all you can to live peaceably and they remain hostile despite your loving deeds, you can know that it only increases their guilt 
And God will take care of it appropriately in his judgment. You can leave it to the wrath of God. Let's close with verse 21. This is a summary, basically, of what we've been talking about. And it gives us hope that in a world full of evil, your doing good will matter. He says in verse 21, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let's take that one phrase at a time. Do not be overcome by evil. What does it mean? Well, overcome means to be overpowered, to be conquered, like a city that's been overrun by an invading army. Paul says you can be conquered by evil. It can win the battle on any given day in your life. Now, because of God's sustaining grace, it cannot win the war. (laughs) By God's power, you are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. 1 Peter 1.5 God's adopted children are at no risk of being overwhelmed permanently, totally, by evil. We will not miss out any of God's promised blessings, including eternal life. We don't have to worry about that. So what is he talking about here? Well, it's a summary statement of all that he's been telling us not to do in this passage. If you curse your persecutors instead of bless them, if you repay evil for evil, If you avenge yourselves, this is what it looks like to be overcome by evil. When you respond with revenge and hatred toward those who do you wrong, when you don't leave it to the wrath of God, that's how evil wins. If Nadine Collier and the other family members had given in to rage, had poured out their anger, on Dylan Roof for his murders, he would have won. He would have infected them with the same hatred that motivated his actions, but he didn't win because they forgave him. And the same is true for all of us. We are very much tempted in our current environment to join the outrage culture. To just get mad at everybody and everything and act out of that. But if we give in to hating people who wrong us, whether that person is someone you know or someone in a corporate office somewhere or someone on Capitol Hill, if we give in to hatred, then we've lost the battle. And evil has won. We've been overcome by evil. But there's a different way to go to overcome evil with good. What does that look like? It's what Paul has been telling us positively to do in this passage. It's when you bless those who persecute you. It's when you give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all, and you do that. It's when you live peaceably with all. It's when your enemy is hungry or thirsty and you give them what they need, all the while leaving their wrongdoing to the wrath of God, hoping for their repentance, but accepting that if that repentance doesn't come, then God will deal with it justly. 
When you do these things, you have overcome evil with good. You have won the battle for the day. It seems counterintuitive, but that is how we overcome evil in the world. Will it end all the terrible things that are happening in the news? No, it won't. But it may end some of them. And it may be the reason that some people escape from evil and become lovers of good and lovers of God. Like the reporter who said, if this is the kind of person that Christianity produces, then I may have to give it a second look. Or like the centurion at the cross, who after seeing how Jesus died, said, truly this man was the Son of God. Who knows, the way you respond to being wronged by others might be the very thing that leads somebody to Christ. And that would be a tremendous victory over evil. Let's pray. This is a total work of the Holy Spirit. We know it, Lord, because that is so not what we want to do. But you have given us your Spirit to work into us all the, the beauty that you want to restore in your image as us, your image bearers. You, you're doing a change in our life moment by moment by the Spirit. And so we just pray that you advance that even more now in this particular area. We're so overwhelmed by so many voices and so much anger and confusion and shouting. And Lord, we don't want to give in to all that. You, we need you to help us. And we ask you to make us the counterculture that loves our enemies so that those will say, truly this Jesus must be the Son of God. I need to give Christianity a second look. We ask you to do that for us and in us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's arise and sing of the love.